Good morning. I think I've met most of you, but if I haven't met you, my name is Jeff Stevens. It's a pleasure to speak with you this morning. Thanks for having me. I have to admit, um, I'm not uncomfortable speaking in front of people at all. I've just, by happenstance throughout the years, had the ability, the opportunity uh, to stand in front of uh, congressmen and uh, foreign dignitaries and leaders of large factions of foreign militaries, um, admirals, generals, um, the nation's finest. It does not bother me to speak in front of people. However, this week, Aaron asked me to, uh, to speak with all of you, and it's in the wake of everybody watching Billy Graham videos all week. <laughs> right? So I couldn't help but think to myself yesterday, that's a tough act to follow. Everybody watches the greatest of Billy Graham all week, and then Jeff Stevens comes to speak to us at church. So I'm sorry, and you get what you get here. But I will say this. It's by his grace that it's not Billy Graham's power or mine that we receive his word. So the text that Jason read touched me in a way this morning as I studied this week and the week prior in a way that I hope will uh, bring some light to a specific spot in this text um, that pierced me. I'll start here. Twen Theodros from Eritrea. Bakram Kolmatov from Tajikistan. Jean Shajui from China. Hadi Eskri, Iran. Obamaiko Haimanat from Eritrea. Musi Izaz, Eritrea. Zhao Wailing, China. Cheng Hongpen, China. Yang Hua, China. Ibrahim Firaz Zui, Iran, La Chenren, China. Imran Gafur, Pakistan. Asia Bibi, Pakistan. Ali Yamiti, China. Dr. Kiflu Gabra Mescal, Eritrea. Kidane Weldau, Eritrea. Haley Mazgi, Eritrea. Just a short list of people who preach the gospel who are in prison today that are being tracked by an organization who searches out these people and tries to find ways to leverage governments or find organizations who will rescue them from imprisonment from these governments because they are in jail for preaching the word of God. The uh, apostles here in this text have now been in and out of prison at least once and are going to do it again. This is not new news. This will be the first major portion of persecution that we're going to see in the Bible after the death of Jesus. To give you an idea how bad the persecution is in the world, I want to compare the country of Eritrea with the United States. Eritrea is about four and a half million people in the country. There are 1,000 prisoners for the Christian faith in that country. 0.02%. So if we made that look like the United States, if we took that equation and moved it over to 300 million people, 60,000 Americans would be in prison just for saying the name Jesus Christ out in public. And that number, 60, 
thousand people, it would blow my mind. Can you imagine 60,000 people in prison in the U.S. For, for speaking his name? So this is happening today. We know that there are 90, at least 90 Christian, not just Christians, but Christian leaders, leaders of the church in Iran right now. 19 countries in the world actively search out, seek out Christians in the community and arrest them so they can no longer speak his name. Cambodia, China, Colombia, Cuba, Egypt, India, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, some parts of Mexico, Myanmar, Nigeria, North Korea, the Philippines, Russia, Sudan, Vietnam, and the Pashtun region of Afghanistan and Pakistan, where some of you may have found yourself at some point, the most unreached region of the world, according to most Christian resources. Less than 0.001% of the population is Christian, and if you speak his name, you will be flogged or killed. So, as Jason read the text this morning, I'm sure a lot of you could hear the nature of resilience in these um, first century apostles, right? They're, they're being verbally harassed, they are having hands laid on them, but they want to continue to go out and serve their Lord. They want to continue to go out and speak the name of Jesus so I think there's definitely a message of resilience in this. Um, there's also a message of healing works that we'll just touch upon today, but it's not really what I want to bring you to. I think there's a lot wrapped up in this passage that we can get to. Um, and some, and if you've listened to Pastor Aaron speak, Pastor Aaron really shoots right to the gospel message and everything that he gets to. It's like, where do I find Jesus right in the center of this message? Um, and I have this little bit of an abstract view in the way I study, where right? I love history and I like looking at kind of the historical background of things. It's my, my passion in reading the text. Um, the history lesson that is involved is, is really important. I think it's intricate and I think it can lead us to some truths in this. What's really cool about this text, if you look at the, uh, the Acts as you lay it out line by line, we are within about the three to four months after Jesus has died. So this is not new news to the Jewish authorities that are there. This is, Jesus has been crucified. There is a faction of Christians that went and kind of hid for a little while, but they are still out and actively working. And it's bookended between two very important deaths. And we don't very often equate the two to each other and what importance they have. And the first death is what Aaron's preached on last week, the death of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And then we'll fast forward, and this will be gone over probably in two more weeks, but we're going to see the death of Stephen. Stephen was the first apostle, he was the first deacon of the church, so hopefully there's no equation there, but he was the first apostle to be killed after Jesus' death. So between these two important first century post-Jesus, post-crucifixion deaths, we have a story of persecution, resilience, healing, the Holy Spirit working within the church. And you see this amazing story unfold. And where is it unfolding? It's unfolding right in public. Solomon's portico. So 
Uh, as we read our text, we look in the beginning in verse 12, and we see that uh, the temple is the center point for business as usual um, for the Jewish community and also for the new Christian community. So what is Solomon's portico? So on the temple, you have a big east-facing humongous stone porch, humongous white stone pillars. It is, I, I can't remember what the... Uh, the dimensions were, but this thing is, it's gigantuan. You basically look all out over the east of Jerusalem, down over the hills, and you could see it sitting up high, and the people would gather there. And they wouldn't just gather there to hang out. This is like downtown Southern Pines on a first Friday. Okay, so people are selling their wares. Uh, there's, it's questionable, but it may be where Jesus went into the, we say the courts, and he flipped the tables to the uh, for the people who were selling sacrifices, right? Everybody is familiar with that story. Jesus got upset with people because of what they were doing in front of his father's house. So imagine this spot being just full of people meeting, and you know, they get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you go out to meet your friends. It's there at Solomon's Portico. This is a busy, busy place. Well, the apostles are there in the midst of it, preaching. Now, just behind them is... The temple is holy, right? The Jewish people who have not accepted Christ, this is an extremely holy place. So it's an offense to the Jews. It's also an offense to everybody else who's not Jewish or Christian who is coming up who doesn't like the street preacher. They are stirring the pot. The people are not enjoying this very much. So there's a lot of people coming to visit because they're not just preaching. They are healing people by the masses. And if you picked up on this in the text, Peter isn't just, you know, bringing people in and saying, do you accept Jesus? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be saved? Literally, people are dragging the sick and the dying out in the street into where the portico is. And as he walks by, his shadow passes over them and they are healed. That is amazing. This is the first time we see healings that take place in this manner. I think you could build a whole sermon over healings and miraculous works out of this passage, although not the direction we're going to go. What I think you should see out of this is this important truth. The Holy Spirit empowers people to do work to glorify him in specific ways at specific times, in his timing, for his glory, we see Jesus in the apostles' healing. When we move over into Pentecost, we see tongues. As we move forward, we're seeing, seeing a different type of miraculous healing. We're seeing that the Holy Spirit doesn't work our way. He works his way knowing that there is a specific need for the people there. They needed to see that the apostles had power in his name. So as they preached, I'm sure there were people there that did not appreciate this, to include the Jews, the Jewish people. The Holy Spirit wanted those people to see, they have my blessing. They're there for me in a big, big way. And this is why his shadow alone was able to heal. Now, the Jewish authorities come and they, they arrest them. They're like, no, this is not going to happen. And they're going to put them in jail. Um, 
They laid hands on them and put them in jail, though, which I think it's funny that they bring that point up because I can't imagine that they would just walk up and go, hey, guys, you should really stop. And they go, no, we're not going to stop. You're going to have to throw us in jail. They laid hands on them. This was not a violent protest, but it was definitely not a, we're going to go easy. We're going to stay and preach Christ. You're going to have to put us in jail, which is what they did. They laid hands on them. Now, they put them in jail, and this is going to throw a curveball into the the authorities, um, you know, right across. They're not going to be able to hit this ball. An angel is going to come and release them from jail in the middle of the night so they can go back out and preach again. Now, I have my assumptions on who this angel is. We have one angel that keeps popping up, and this does not show up in your text. Um, but an angel, not the, but an angel of the Lord shows up to release them out of prison. If I were a betting man, um, I would I would think it's Gabriel. Um, you can find that in some commentaries. The reason I think it's Gabriel is because we see this recurring theme where Gabriel comes and he likes to uh, interject into people's lives, tell them about their healing. Uh, he's a powerful angel who brings a message. He releases them and they go back out. Now we're going to see this weird kind of contradiction because the Jewish authorities are telling them, do not go back out and preach Jesus anymore. Don't do it. Okay, now everybody has read this before. We've all dealt with this. Um, this passage in Romans 13 that tells us to obey our authorities, right? So we're supposed to do what we're told. We're supposed to obey the speed limit. We're supposed to not break our country's laws, whether we disagree with them or not. We're supposed to obey our leadership at church. There, there is an order to things, and God wants there to be an order to things. But Peter is not having it. He's like, you can't tell me not to preach Christ. I am going back out there to preach Christ. So this is, it, it seems like it may be a contradiction. Here's what I want you to see from that. It is not a contradiction because... In God's order and in his plan, he wants you to obey your authorities when it is godly. When it does not stir things in a manner that make you not able to spread the gospel. It's important that we follow our laws because if we are lawbreakers, our fellow citizens will not look upon us as peaceful people spreading the message of the Lord. But it is also important that no matter what we do in our lives, no matter what the authorities say, we bring Christ first, even if we're at risk of being put in prison. I want to talk to you a little bit about the council that's been put together for these guys. This council um, that's going to come and face our apostles that have now been in prison twice, who were told by the angel, don't just go back to the portico, but go into the temple and teach. This council is getting pretty upset. They realize now that these men are not just so bold as our theme would suggest for our church and for the book of Acts. 
that they would just preach Jesus outside, but to follow this angel's orders, go into the temple and preach now, they have crossed into holy ground to preach Jesus. They are teaching who Christ is in the midst of where the Jews believe God sits. The Sanhedrin, these are the people that would come up against them. So who are the Sanhedrin? So the Sanhedrin are a council. They're like, they're like um, a political authority. And the Sanhedrin are really, they're appointed leaders. They're all throughout the regions in Jerusalem. And they're made up of two people, right? You've got the Sadducees, who are like the, the politically elite. And then another group who you've heard a lot of teaching in the church, and that's uh, the Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees are the religious elite of the time. So these people make up these, these councils. And these councils, depending on the population of where you were there, are small, about 23 to 24 guys, or they're as big as 71 guys. So now we're right in the middle of the, the action. The biggest court of all the land for the Jews. So there's probably 70 to 71 guys as they rearrest them, pull them out of the temple, and pull them in front of the court. And if you know anything about people in that region, they're not quiet. There's probably a lot of bickering. There's probably a lot of arguing. The men are screaming at them. They don't want them to be able to speak in the temple. They are coming for them. They want them to stop. Verse 33 in your text. If you will just look at that for me, if your Bible's still open, look at that text. This is what I believe is the important message that we extrapolate from this. It's something that I had never really heard preached on or taught before. But as I read and reread and read and reread, I couldn't quite get my head around why is this worded this way? It doesn't make any sense because it doesn't, you know, if I look at a couple different versions of the Bible, um, you know, I look at the NASB or the ESV, which are relatively modern versions, are very modern in comparison to some other ones, or the NIV, it uses the term cut to the quick. I don't know about any of you. I do not use that term in my daily life. Hey, you've really offended me. You have cut me to the quick. You try it this week. See if people look at you funny, right? Because it's just not something we use. So how did we get the translators to use the original language? And then why couldn't they just put this in a really simple way that led us to understand that they were really mad at the apostles? And here's why I think they couldn't do it. The word in Greek that they were using is a word diaprio, diaprio, it's a Greek word, and it means to cut something with a saw all the way through. It means for the heart to be ripped in two or split down the center. And I got to thinking, well, that's pretty crazy. I mean, really? These guys' hearts were ripped in two because they were preaching? Well, there's two other spots that we see cut to quick in our text. Not in this specific one, but we're going to see in Acts 2.37 and then in 7.54. And it's used pretty much the same exact way. The word of God is being spoken 
And people are torn apart because of the word of God. Their hearts literally come apart, are sawed in two. And as I read this, I couldn't help but think, well, isn't this kind of like what happens when our heart is worked on by the Holy Spirit? Is it not our heart that he comes for? Is it not Ezekiel that said that the Lord will replace our heart? Take it out. You have a heart of stone and replace it with a softer heart, right? And then as we look at Romans, in Romans 2.29, we are taught about circumcision of the heart. And if you know anything about circumcision, there is some cunning involved. So if that's the work that the Lord does in the heart, is to reach into you and cut your heart, that his word has so much power that it can make it through your flesh, your bones, into an organ that you absolutely need to live, that pumps the blood through your body, that his words alone have this power to reach in and do surgical work on your heart, then this is the important verse out of all this text. Because the word that is being spoken, that to some softens them, to some circumcises their heart and changes their lives forever for him, well, to others, it tears it in two and it angers them. You see, it wasn't the healing. It wasn't Peter's shadow. It wasn't the fact that they were speaking in the portico where everybody else was. It was God's word that was angering them. It was God's word alone that cut them to the quick. Gamaliel, here's where we see these bookends become very important. As Jason read earlier this morning, you probably picked up on uh, the council that comes together. They've now been arrested three times. Once in our text last week we read, Two times now, arrested in the portico, sent in, released by the angel, back into prison, and now they are sitting in front of a council by Gamaliel. So who's Gamaliel? Well, Gamaliel is part of the Sanhedrin, so he's part of this big council, and he's a Pharisee. So that means he's a religious guy, right? He's probably got a lot to say. He's a senior member of the council. He's very religious. He probably knows much of the Torah by heart. He speaks very affluently to his peers on the council as to all things religious. He's going to make an important decision here for our um, our apostle friends. He reminds them of two other people that came up and had small uprisings that he relates to Jesus and his apostles. Now, these other two guys are kind of insignificant. They came up, they led a small false ministry, and they disappear into history. What he didn't want is to stir up something and make it harder for the Jewish people. We've already killed Jesus. He was astutely aware that Jesus had been killed and probably sat on that council as well. But he tells his council members, look, this will probably just die. It'll just go away. 
Let them just go and do their thing. Don't preach Jesus, get out of here, and it'll all go away. Well, we, we all know that that's not going to happen, because what do the apostles do? They go right back out there and they preach Christ. Here's the important thing about Gamaliel. Gamaliel's a teacher as well, religiously. So he was a teacher to a very important person that we see in history, and that's Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul. Paul oversaw the death of Stephen, the other bookend. So we see the bookend of our Lord killing Ananias and Sapphira, bookended with the death of Stephen, who was overseen by Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, whose predecessor is Gamaliel, who sits on the council here. So this whole story is just tied together, the Holy Spirit working through it the whole time, so that we can see Peter be this first martyr and is going to speak boldly through the church for their endurance in him. Here's what I think is something we should take home. Um, is our references to the Lord and then our references to Jesus Christ. As we look through the text, when we look in the first couple of verses, we see the reference being to the Lord, a king, our God, almighty in power. And then as we move through the text, in the very last text that we read, they go back out to, to preach Jesus Christ. So we see kingship, and then we see the savior or the vessel at both ends within our bookends. And why is this important within the bookends of those two deaths? Because I think this, I think Ananias and Sapphira saw Jesus Christ as their savior, but I don't think they saw God as their Lord. I think they said, I like sitting in this group of people. I like the food at this table. I like the music. I like that I get to raise my hands. I like that everybody smiles at me when I go into church on Sunday. But I don't want to give everything up because he's not my Lord. He's not my God. He's not my King. And when they were unwilling to give it all to him, he gave everybody a very big example, right? He kills them on the spot. This is the difference. We see our apostles understanding who their savior is and giving everything to include their ability to speak publicly, their freedom, and possibly death, knowing that those were the risks they were going to take, they gave it all to their king. And it turns out that through that, true salvation happens. And as we move forward and see the death of Stephen, we'll see that his death was not in vain. My question would be this. How uncomfortable are you willing to get? How uncomfortable am I willing to get? I must admit that I'm not always a fine example of a Christian. I don't love people enough. If you were to go ask my wife this morning after service, she could probably tell you that I scowl at people. I have this way where I look at people, and I don't intend to, 
But when I look at them, even if I'm listening intently, I guess I just bring a feeling of anger. And I assure you it's not. It's just kind of who I am. But I wonder, do the words that I say, do the actions that I have, do they show people that I love Jesus? Do they show them that I love him enough that I'm willing to share him with them? Do my words cut to the quick? Am I utilizing the Holy Spirit in my life so that my words have an impact on people's hearts? So that when I'm at work and one of my friends who's going through a horrible divorce needs to hear, hey man, I know a way to make your life better. Jesus. When I see somebody out on the street that needs food, am I stopping and saying, hey man, Jesus. When my kids and I aren't getting along, do I take a deep breath in the midst of it all and go, hey, Jesus is the center. Am I using the words that touch people's hearts? Are my words cutting to the quick? Am I utilizing the gospel to drive everything that I do and everything I say in my life? I think it's important this cut to the quick Because I think when our lives are gospel-centered, when we've decided that everything that we are going to do in our life revolves around him, when he's first, then the things that pour out of our heart, because he has done that work on it, tend to do work on others' hearts. It either softens their heart, because that's what God's word does, It circumcises their heart. It leads them to him. Or it angers them because it is God's word. So I think that the the test is, or the meter is, or the way to measure would be, as you interact with your family, your friends, your kids, your coworkers, is this happening in your circle? Are people being saved, softened, or angered? Because this is what we see the Word of God doing on people's hearts. And then I think the final question for this would be, in order to do this, you have to recognize Him as your King. Because if I'm not doing these things, if I'm not preaching this Word, then have I really said He's my king, or is he just my savior? Is this it? Sunday. Is this it? Grace at the dinner table. Or have I recognized that he's a king, the king, the one and only king that sits above them all, that could, in a word or in a thought, drop me dead to the floor for not giving it all to him? He has that power. Do I recognize that in my life? I'm not able to use those words that pierce unless I move from a place where I do enjoy that my Savior has given me this, but he's my king and I need to give it all to him.
So this week, I think the challenge should be for us. Give it to him. Start with prayer, but give it to him. And let your words work on people's hearts. Pray with me. Father, thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son Jesus and the work that he has done. The work he did on the cross for our lives, that we may give up everything. There is nothing we need to do, Lord, and we recognize this. Our response alone is it, that we accept the gift of your son. Part of that response, Lord, we understand is to share your gospel message that we recognize that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and that it is you that has the power, God. All I need to do is share it with people. Father, we pray for our community, that your community would recognize you as King, a King who loves us so much that he would send his Son who would sit in the holy courts in paradise with you, that he would send him away from that into this horrible place to give up his life so that we may join you. Father, we pray that this community would see that amazing sacrifice, that we would be vessels to reach into this community so people would come to us so that we could share this message, that they would be saved to glorify you. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for uh, our parishioners and our leadership. Thank you for who you are. Challenge us this week, Lord, in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.